Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me a question about the Bible and tradition. That sent me on a long journey into the history of Christianity. I dug into the history of the Bible, why I believed what I believed, where it all came from, and why other denominations, other branches of Christianity, didn't believe the things that I held to be true. It was then that I bumped into the ancient Catholic Church. It's inevitable in a study of the history of Christianity, and there it was. It was also then that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed was oftentimes completely wrong. I didn't know a lot about Catholicism, even though I thought I did. My ideas were based often on misunderstandings and misinformation. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We sit down each week to have conversations with influential Catholic thinkers about actual Catholic topics from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by the incredible author, speaker, evangelist, pilgrim leader, Steve Ray, to talk about the papacy. What does the Pope do? What is his job description? Where does the Catholic theology, the doctrine of the Church and the Pope, where does this all come from? We unpack the biblical roots of the papacy and its origins with one of the experts on the subject. He's written two books, in fact, Steve Ray. It's a great conversation, and in typical Steve Ray fashion, he pulls no punches. None whatsoever. It's a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you in part by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. If you want to join the supporters there, please do visit that website, and any financial contribution towards this podcast goes right back into the podcast and helps me to continue this work. If you like it, please tell a friend. Please rate and review this podcast if you can, and thank you so much for listening. Please pray for me, and know I'm praying for you too, especially during these challenging times. Without any further ado, here's my wonderful conversation with Steve Ray on the papacy. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome back a returning guest. It's going to be a fantastic discussion. It's a wonderful topic. I'm joined by Steve Ray. Steve Ray is a Catholic convert. He is a popular Catholic apologist, a speaker. He's the author of a number of fantastic books, including some of my favorites, including Crossing the Tiber, Evangelical Protestants Discover the Historic Church, Upon This Rock, Peter and the Primacy of Rome, St. John's Gospel, a Bible study, and his latest book on the Pope, The Papacy, What the Pope Does and Why It Matters. 
He is the producer of the Fantastic Footprints of God DVD series, and he is a very popular pilgrimage leader all kinds of places all over the world, especially the Holy Land, which earned him the nickname Jerusalem Jones. Steve, I'm so thrilled you can join us again this week. It's going to be a fantastic discussion. Thank you for being here. Welcome and hello. Hello, Keith. Well, glad to be here. And thanks for the invitation. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you over the next hour or so. Well, you know what, Steve? I had a lot of people uh, write in to ask me questions about this, and it was for me as well as a convert uh, myself, one of those big questions I had to wrestle with. And I thought, well, who better to get than Steve Ray? Because your book, your first book upon this rock was was so instrumental in my understanding of the papacy. I thought, if I can get you, well, listeners will have this question settled quite quickly in their minds. Well, thank you. I also have a DVD called Peter, the Keeper of the Keys, where we went all through the Holy Land and Rome and went to all the places that Peter was, and on location explained what his life and the papacy all the way to Rome, where we see the glory of Christendom. And I have talks I give on this, too, called Peter, the Rock, and the Keys. So, yeah, I've done a little work on this topic uh, here and on location, and it's a favorite topic of mine. <laughs> well, mine too. And if I told you that, if I had you guess what the first DVD was that I took from my parish library when I was still in the RCIA process, becoming Catholic, would you guess that it was your DVD on, on Peter and the Papacy? In the Holy <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. You know, it gives me great joy. Um, a very humble effort of ours. I had no idea how to make videos or do anything in Father Fessio. I told him my idea. He's the publisher at Ignatius Press, and he sent me $50,000 and said, get going. And Ignatius Press has invested already over $2 million in developing the first nine. And next year, we're filming the last one, Doctors of the Church, and I'll have the whole 10-part series finished. But it's very gratifying and humbling to hear that guys like you uh, found those DVDs useful and helpful and uh, helped you come into the church. Uh, it just gives me great joy. <laughs> well, Steve, I know you're not a priest, and I know that uh, some Protestants have a hang-up about confession to begin with, but if I can confess one thing to you as a, as a brother Christian, brother Catholic, I don't think I ever actually returned that DVD afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it's been to good use. And, <laughs> and, you know, that I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said, don't ever loan anybody a book. All the books in my library I've borrowed from others. <laughs> That sounds about right. There's something about books and and DVDs that people think once they borrow them, they can keep them. But you're not the only one. I think it's a uh, common occurrence. (laughs) Well, let's begin here, uh, Steve, if we can, because uh, the papacy is one of those things that's often just shrouded in so much confusion. And when you talk about the papacy or the pope, we're not talking about one pope in particular. I think that's important to underscore. You know, there have been there have been bad popes, there have been less than good popes. And I think one of the major confusions when non-Catholics think about the Pope is that they assume that what we believe the Pope is not just infallible in certain circumstances, and we'll talk more about this later, I think, but they think the Pope is also impeccable, that everything they say or do is somehow perfect. I wonder if we can begin there by dispelling that myth and kind of framing what we're actually talking about here. How do you address that idea of of the Pope not being a perfect person, but having a certain office. How do you address that in your books? 
Well, are you are you kidding me, Keith? Are you telling me the Pope can't predict the baseball scores and the weather next week? <laughs> I, I thought the Pope was infallible. Anything he says and does is going to be true, and we have to believe everything he says and follow every uh, idea that he has. I'm just being sarcastic, of course. No, that's what I've, a lot of people think, though, is that because the Pope is infallible, that whatever he says is true or will come true or must be followed and must be adhered to 100% or that he is perfect himself without any flaws. And so let's dispel that first by saying Jesus chose the weakest link first. He chose Peter first. Peter was certainly not flawless. He was certainly not impeccable, which means without any fault or sin or wrongdoing. Peter is a good one to be first because Jesus took a guy who oh, he had a favorite saying, open, open mouth, insert foot. And he also <laughs> denied Jesus. And even in Matthew 16, where Jesus said to Peter, you are rock and I'll give you the keys. We know that passage, we'll discuss that more later. Uh, in the same chapter, Matthew 16, Jesus looks at Peter at one point and says, get thee behind me, Satan. So here you've got a guy who is a, a very um, questionable quantity here of loyalty and disloyalty, of truth and error, and yet Jesus picks him to be the first bishop of Rome, the first head of the church. So he's showing us right to the beginning, a person doesn't have to be perfect and infallible or even real smart sometimes to be a pope. All right. So that's, I mean, that's certainly a fantastic example. I mean, I think I, I, I think we're safe in saying that our Lord uh, knew what he was doing when he chose Peter, especially with all Peter's flaws. This, from the beginning, gives us a good example of what the pope is and what the pope isn't in terms of perfection of character, Right. Right, and Peter, I think that the Lord loved him the most. I know that John is called the beloved disciple, and I, I know what that means, that the Lord, he just liked John. He he was a young guy, very energetic. Uh, I think uh, John was probably about 15 years old when he was a disciple, because he lived to be a great old age. But I think he loved Peter the most and gave him that position because Peter was wholeheartedly in, even though he dropped the ball. He wanted to serve Christ. He had the goal of being a disciple of Jesus, and he said, I'll die for you. I'll give my life for you. He failed to live up to that, but that's what he wanted to do. That was his goal. That was his great desire. And if you know the geography of the Holy Land, like I do, I've been to, to Capernaum where Peter lived and where Jesus lived with him for three years. Uh, I've been there over a hundred and 80 times to the Holy Land. Now, I don't, I've lost track, but I've been there so many times. And if you look at the geography, Peter's house is located right next to the synagogue on one side and right next to the harbor where the fishing boats were and, and fish were sold on the other side. Peter was no dummy. That was a big city, uh, uh, Capernaum was. Peter's house was kind of like living next door to the governor. He obviously was a very astute businessman. He had a nice house right in the best part of town in a big city of Capernaum. And he was probably a very important civic figure, good businessman. So I think Jesus chose him not only because of his desire and his outspoken willingness to give his life for Jesus, and which he did in the end, by the way, being crucified upside down for Jesus, willingly giving himself to that. But also he was a very astute businessman so that he was able, I think Jesus saw in him the ability to conduct as a CEO in a sense. <laughs> you know, the Pope is not just the pastor of a church, but he is in a way a CEO of a huge corporation. And uh, I think that Jesus picked Peter also for that reason, because Peter proved himself in daily life and in business to be very astute about that. 
Okay, so let's get into what the papacy is. And I mean, obviously, if if we're talking about our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters, especially uh, our Protestant brothers and sisters, they reject the papacy. So can you explain to us what this office is? We know that the person holding the papacy is not necessarily in themselves perfect, but what is the office of the Pope? And why do Protestants necessarily, or one of the reasons why they would reject that office? Well, you know, it's funny to me that Protestants would because I, and I know I come from that position 26 years ago. I was a Protestant, and I would have come on your show to try and convince you to not be Catholic <laughs> if you'd invited me on 26 years ago. And I was very good at arguing against Catholics. I used to teach classes on how to convert Catholics, and I was very good at it. But the whole idea of Protestants is they go to a church where they have a pastor or they go to a denomination that has a board of directors and they have somebody in charge. And many of those Protestants hold to the teaching of that pastor every bit as strong as Catholics do to the teaching of the Pope. And they, if, the, if that pastor said this passage of Scripture means this and you need to do that, they will do that as though their pastor is a Pope, though their pastor is infallible. And many people themselves think that they're the Pope because they don't have anybody to tell them what to do. Martin Luther said, I am my own pope and council. So it's it's kind of humorous and ironic in a sense that Protestants would be against a man having leadership like the pope does in the church when they have leaders in their own churches, whether big or small, that they follow and that they listen to quite adamantly. But in the Catholic Church, we believe that just like a baseball team has a captain and a police department has a chief and a country has a president or a king, family has a father, whatever the organization is, we need leadership to not only instruct and guide someone who's experienced and knowledgeable, but also who has authority to bring unity and to enforce laws and to adjudicate them in in an organization. Every organization has that, and if they don't, it's utter chaos. And the Catholic Church has understood God gave us a leader like all human institutions need, although it's not just a human institution. It's a divine institution. We've heard that the Scripture tells us it's the body of Christ, that the Church is the mystical body of Christ. So it's at one time a human group, a bunch of us sinful humans, but it's also the divine, supernatural, mystical body of Christ. And we need a leader to hold us in unity, to teach the truth, to define the truth, and to um, enforce that in a sense, not with military or guns or a police force, but by moral uh, compulsion. And so the Pope is the leader of the Church. He's the shepherd of the flock, so to speak. That's how Jesus refers to it, feed my sheep and tend my lambs. Jesus refers to himself as the chief shepherd. He is the main chief shepherd. So that we have that. He is basically, the, it's the office and the jurisdiction of the Pope over the universal Church to add unity and confidence to the teaching. It originates the word Pope from the word Papa. It simply means Papa or Patriarch or Father, one who is leading, just like a father does in a family. He's the Papa. He is the leader, the Patriarch of the Catholic Church. And people may not realize this, but it's the oldest existing institution in the world. The Roman Empire rose and fell. The chair of Peter still remained. 
the Byzantine Empire rose and fell, and the office of the Pope still remained. The Muslims came raging through in the uh, Ottoman Empire, and they they, uh, finally fell, but the chair of Peter still stood. And then came the British Empire, and the sun was never going to set on the British Empire, but it finally did. And the chair of Peter, the office of the Pope, was still there. And now the Western world, the United States, is rising. We're here, and eventually maybe it'll be China next. Who knows? But as long as institutions rise rise and fall, because the institution of the papacy is a divine institution, it has lasted longer than any of the others. In fact, it can even trace its way back another 1,500 years to Moses. So in a sense, the papacy and that office of authority has lasted 3,500 years, no human institution can come close. <laughs> I want to talk about some uh, evidence for the papacy from the New and Old Testament, but I want to first back up a second, because what you said is so fundamental, so foundational for uh, so many of us evangelicals, us Protestants who find the Catholic Church. I can think of so many guests on this show. I can think of so many stories that I've heard and things that I've read, and, and yours included, We've run into an issue of interpreting the Bible for ourselves, or our pastor interpreting the Bible, or our denomination interpreting the Bible. And we run into a problem where you suddenly realize that, okay, well, my church, my denomination here interprets these these scriptures this way. This denomination over here interprets it this way. The Catholic Church over here, often not on our radar at all as a Protestant, interprets it this way. Who's got the right way? And like you said so poignantly, and I, I wrote a blog article about this years ago when I was unpacking my own journey into the Catholic Church, if I am not under the authority of a pope, I become the pope, my own pope, by interpreting the scriptures how I think it's best interpreted. (laughs) Doesn't that happen? That's just what Martin Luther said. He's the guy that started all of this breakaway Protestant. We say Protestant, but it's really Protestant, a protest against what? Against the Catholic Church. And that's still what the Protestant basically is today, although many of them don't realize that. And when Martin Luther broke away, he said, I am my own pope and council. Who gives you the authority to say that, Luther? I do, because I am Dr. Luther. Martin Luther didn't realize that when he pulled down one pope, he created a billion new popes. Because now every single Christian is their own pope. Even if I go to a Baptist church, like I used to do, and I follow my pastor, and I have great confidence in him, as soon as I think he's preaching incorrectly, my father was called a church hopper, like a grasshopper. Every time he would disagree with a pastor, he would jump and go to a different church. When I was a kid, we went to many different Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Reformed churches, I can't even begin to list all of them because my dad thought that he had the final interpretation of the Bible, and he'd follow a pastor only as long as he thought the pastor was going against, according to my dad's way of viewing it. That is very much the way Protestants are. Why do Protestants have so many different denominations? Because the way they multiply is by dividing. They divide, split, and multiply. That's why we have who knows, 30,000, 40,000 different denominations today, because everybody thinks they have their own Bible. The Holy Spirit is interpreting it for them. They have a personal connection with the Holy Spirit. They read the Bible. Oh, this is what the Holy Spirit revealed to me, but it disagrees with what the Holy Spirit reveals to the guy sitting next to him. So all of a sudden, you have all of these conflicts about what the Bible really means, and it was never intended to be all by itself Bible alone. It was intended to be a book, a family heirloom, read in the family 
family and explained by the father. When the kids all sit around the table, father gets out the family album and he explains to the kids all the traditions and the stories of the family. And when that father dies, another one comes along and he tells it to that family. That's what tradition is. Tradition just means paradosis is a Greek word. It means to hand something on like, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. That's a tradition, something that's handed on from one father to the next father to the next father. And I bet you, Keith, you sang that when, as a kid. And when you have grandkids like I do, I have 17 grandkids now. We all sing that song, too. So the Protestants have thrown out the papacy. But let me do uh, uh, one more thing, and I'll tell you, it's kind of ironic. I love ironic things. And the Pope is really the source of unity for all Christians, Catholics, and Protestants, and I'll tell you why. Because we as Catholics look to the Pope as our source of unity, and we respect his leadership and his authority, and we follow we follow that, and that's our source of unity. But for Protestants, it's the same, because the only thing they can all agree on, they cannot agree on what the Bible means in passages, they can't agree on Mary, they can't agree on salvation, they can't agree on anything. The only thing that all Protestants agree on is that they reject the authority of the Pope, so the Pope is a unifying factor for them <laughs> as well. That's so fascinating and absolutely true. You know, I, I heard a... a a Protestant apologist uh, talking about the the idea that the papacy was kind of invented wholesale by Catholics to control the Bible and to control the church and to control Christians. And it was painted as a very negative perspective on what the Pope does, some kind of authoritarian figure. Well, the reality is, if we're looking at the Bible, there's a number of, of precedents for the papacy, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, not as this authoritarian uh, figure invented later on to control Christians, but as you say, to unite and to guide as a father, as a family uh, figure, to guide the Christian family. So I wonder if we can dig into these different precedents for the papacy. Maybe begin in the New Testament. Uh, what's some What's some evidence in the New Testament that we see of the papacy being established? I have often said that I came to understand the Catholic Church and her unique doctrines more from the Old Testament than from the New Testament. And when you look at the old, it lays the foundation for the new. And we refer to the church as the new Israel. And if there's a new Israel, you would expect it to have the same structure of authority as the old Israel. It's not a totally different, unique thing. It's just the new Israel, which is going to look a lot like the old Israel. The old Israel, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he had three things. He had the written word of God on stone. He had the oral tradition that God gave him orally on the mountain, which was not written down, but it was practiced. And then there was a third thing, which was the chair of Moses. It says in Exodus 18 that Moses took his seat among the people and judge them. One Protestant commentary, I really love it, Kyle and Dalich, very authoritative and, and uh, respected by Protestants, says that God gave Moses the infallible gift of interpretation. Isn't that interesting? That they accept the fact that God gave Moses an infallible gift of interpretation, but would deny that to the new Israel and the leader of the new Israel. 
Well, Moses came down the mountain with those three things, and if we look at the Catholic Church, we will see that we have a similar structure of authority because we are the new Israel. We have the written Word of God, we have the sacred tradition, and we have the chair of Moses, which took over the chair of, uh, I mean, the chair of Peter, which was inherited from the chair of Moses. It's the same structure of authority. Now, one of the best ways to see this is in the Old Testament, the king had a royal steward. Just like in any government, he has his his um, people that work under him, his delegated authorities. And we have a vice president and a department of state and a department of commerce, all these things. Well, kings in the Old Testament did the same. They had also um, leaders who worked under them and delegated to them. For the king of Israel, he had one that was very special, and he was called the royal steward or the major domo or the one over the house. And what that meant is that the king delegated his keys, and they weren't multiple sets of keys. Back then you had a set of keys, they belonged to the king. The king would delegate them to his royal steward. If someone doesn't believe me, go to the Bible and read Isaiah chapter 22. You'll hear the, see the whole story. And in there, it talks about the transfer of authority from one royal steward to another, and it says that we're going to take your robe of authority and give it to Eliakim. The keys of the kingdom. And whatever, we're going to give him the keys of the kingdom, and whatever he locks, no man will open, and what he opens, no man would lock. Ding, ding, ding. Sounds a lot like Matthew 16, binding and loosing. And he's going to have a special office. And he's going to be bowed when they walk through the streets of Jerusalem. The people bow to him, and they call him the Father of Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 22. Verse 22 is where, Isaiah 22, 22 is where it says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and what you open no man will shut, and what you shut no man will open. Then Jesus now, we come to the New Testament, Jesus is the king. He's the new king of the new Israel, and of the old Israel's wealth, for that matter. But in Nazareth, when Mary was heard the message from the angel, he said, you are going to give birth to the David, to the son of David. He will sit on King David's throne. So Mary knew that she was giving birth to the new king of Israel. Jesus, as the king of Israel, what's he going to do? He's going to appoint a royal steward. Jesus has the keys of the kingdom. He does what every king of Israel does. He gives, he delegates the his keys to the key, to the royal steward, to the major domo, to the one over the house. And that man now has a special office. He has a special robe of authority. People even bow to him and call him father. And Jesus said to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does that mean? It is, if you understand it as a Jewish person would, it means the king is delegating his, his keys and thus his authority to the royal steward. So there you have Old and New Testament, how they tie together. And that's just one example of how we know that when Jesus said to Peter, you're rocking, I'll give you the keys, he's delegating him to be in charge of the church. And just like, quit with this, I know I'm going on too long with this, but, and just like Jesus, it, uh, in the Old Testament, just like when the royal steward died, a new one would take his place. You didn't throw the keys away. You would find a successor, and he would carry the keys. It was dynastic. The next one would carry the keys all the way through history. And just like Jesus, he gave the keys to Peter. When Peter dies, you don't throw the keys away. They get passed on to the next. So we have Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement, and we go all the way to 266 down to today. <laughs> you know, honestly, when I, 
was looking at becoming Catholic and on the conversion uh, journey. There weren't uh, so many podcasts available. There weren't, you know, all these talks all over YouTube. It wasn't as easy to access some of this information as it is now, uh, thanks be to God. And I remember coming across something in your in your book uh, about this idea of this uh, these these this typology of the Old Testament and and how it, how the papacy is prefigured in there and how it's fulfilled in Peter and this is what Christ intended and these words uh, echo each other so clearly Old Testament and New Testament and it became so obvious this is what Jesus was doing and I, I mean I couldn't believe it I was I was blown away and I was I went online looking for other sources that could could corroborate this and of course once you begin looking there's all kinds of stuff available. But I hadn't heard, and I think that probably most non-Catholic Christians are in the same boat. I mean, I never rejected the papacy as an evangelical. I had no idea about this rich uh, history from the Old Testament and then what Christ was doing, clearly echoing from the Old Testament into the New Testament. I don't think that, that either of us, Steve, rejected the papacy necessarily in, in knowledge of what it was. I, I think we probably just didn't know what it was, right? We rejected a caricature of what it was, like a cartoon figure. And that's because my Protestant past lied to me about the Catholic Church. Those pastors maybe didn't intend to lie. They thought they were teaching the truth because someone had lied to them. But when they taught me about the Catholic Church, I accepted hook, line, and sinker as infallible their garbage that they gave me about what the church was, what the pope was, that it got started by Constantine or St. Gregory the Great, or it's got started uh, and it's now, it controls everybody. You know, all of those lies, I believe them. And I never read a Catholic book when I was growing up. I never heard the Catholic side of it. I only heard the skewed, vitriolic caricatures of what my Protestant past told me, and I came from a very anti-Catholic Baptist experience, and it wasn't until I started reading for myself that I said, oh my goodness, I've been lied to. And I think that's what you what you mean. We, we wouldn't have rejected what was really true, but we rejected the caricature and the twisted perspective that we were given. Yeah, you know, the purpose of this podcast, I say at the beginning of the show, uh, for every episode, is is to is to provide, to fill in those gaps, you know, fix that misinformation. That's what it was for me. And so many non-Catholic Christians, I think, it's not necessarily that we were, we were uh, in, intentionally misled. There certainly is aspects of that in certain denominations, certain branches of, of Protestant Christianity. But more often than not, it's just these misunderstandings, these caricatures, as you say say, of what the Pope is meant to be. But if you dig into what Catholics actually believe and what the history of the Church reveals for us, it's very different. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> and it's quite beautiful to say that. It's quite beautiful and stunningly elegant, what the Church teaches and the structure of authority Jesus left. It's very elegantly beautiful and structured, and it's really a, a, a beautiful thing to behold. And it, it, yeah, I was going to say beautiful as well. It, it fits together so brilliantly, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It, it couples those in a way that my understanding of things that Catholics believed as an evangelical would never have made any sense. <laughs> yep, exactly. 
So there are a number of common arguments that you'd hear uh, against some of this idea of the church, of Peter being the the head of the church, the church being established uh, on on Peter. Things like the interpretation of Petra versus Petros, uh, the idea that it was Peter's confession of faith that. Jesus was talking about rather than actually Peter himself, that idea of the authority. Can we unpack some of these or anticipate some of these common uh, kind of arguments against Peter being the Pope based on the idea of Christ's words in Matthew? Sure. We'll start with uh, in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says that there is no other foundation of the church than Jesus Christ. Hmm. There can be no other foundation. So, and he says that I am the builder, the rock of the foundation is Jesus, and you are the stones. This is a analogy that Paul is giving to the Corinthians to explain that they are members of the body of Christ, and he, as an apostle, is building the church. But he makes the statement that Jesus Christ is the only foundation, there can be no other. So the Protestants will say, aha, so Peter cannot be the rock foundation of the church in Matthew 16, because Paul says that only Jesus can. Protestants tend to always give Paul priority over Jesus. I don't think they realize that. But they will easily set aside the words of Jesus to defer to St. Paul. And the whole passage in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, how can Peter be the rock and Jesus be the foundation at the same time? Well, it's very easy, because what we have there is as a when I was in grade school, I learned that you don't mix the metaphors. You don't mix the different stories and get them confused. In Jesus' statement, he is explaining that Peter is the rock, he is the builder, and he's building the church, and we're the stones of the church being built up on the Peter on the rock. Or you can say Peter is the rock or the office that he is establishing. It would be the same thing to say that. And Peter is the foundation, and Jesus is the builder. Now, Paul is using a different analogy. He's making a different point. And there, Jesus is the foundation. Paul is the builder. Well, how can you have Jesus be the builder of the church if Paul says he's the builder of the church in 1 Corinthians 3? Who is it? Is Jesus the builder of the church, or is Paul the builder of the church? So you have this. You don't confuse those two. Paul is telling you one thing using one analogy. Jesus is using another analogy. So that is one that's often used. 1 Corinthians 3, Jesus saying he's the only foundation. Now, Jesus, if you read in the Greek, New Testament was written originally in the Greek language. Remember, Jesus did not teach and speak in Greek, but we'll get to that in a minute. And when we read it in the English, it says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We don't see any wordplay. It makes no sense, no correlation. Okay, he gave the guy a name, Rock uh, Peter, and he's going to build a church on a rock. Well, when you read it in Greek, it says something where you can begin to see the wordplay. This is the language of the New Testament. It says, you are Petros, and on this Petra. I will build my church. The Greek word for rock is Petra, not Petros. Peter is called Petros. The rock that the church is built on is called Petra. So says I, Steve Ray, the Baptist, 26 years ago, you Catholics are wrong. You just don't know your Bible. If you understood the original (laughs) Greek, you would see that Jesus is talking about Petra being the rock, and he's naming Peter Petros, two very different things. Well, why did Jesus name Peter Petros and not Petra? Because in Greek... You have, like in Spanish, in the Latin languages, 
you have nouns like rock, tree, star, car, whatever, and they all have a masculine or a feminine ending to them so that every noun is either masculine or feminine. Petra, the word for rock, happens to be a feminine noun. Jesus cannot name him Petra. Can you imagine Jesus going to his friends and saying, here's my 200-pound big strong fisherman. His name is Petra. You can't do that. That's a feminine name. So what he does is he takes the word rock, Petra, and he puts a, a masculine ending on it. And therefore he is rock masculine. And on this rock, the regular word for it, feminine, I will build my church. But the two are correlated. But here's the problem. Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek. He was speaking Aramaic. This is why it's such a disadvantage for us as Americans to read the Bible in English of 2,000, uh, so many, uh, 6,000 miles away. That's how far it is, by the way. 6,000 miles away and 2,000 years ago with a totally different language. And they didn't live in democracies. They live in an empires and kingdoms. So we're totally at a disadvantage. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in the Aramaic, there was no masculine and feminine. When Jesus said this to Peter, he said, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will build my church. In other words, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. There was no masculine or feminine. Now, Matthew has the problem. This is where the Petros and Petra comes. Matthew has to translate Jesus's words from Aramaic into the Greek for his gospel, and he's the one that says, Petros and Petra. Now, we know Jesus called that Peter Kepha, or rock, because when he first met Peter in 1 John chapter 1, I mean, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 42, he says, nice to meet you, Peter. I've been waiting to meet you. His name was Simon, actually. Nice to meet you, Simon. You will be called Kepha. So Peter knew from the very beginning that his name was going to be Kepha, but he had no idea what that meant. So Jesus said, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha I will build my church. Now, if you just go with the English or with the uh, Greek, I can see where the Protestants get confused. But if you understand the passage in its context, there's no confusion there. And it's very clear, and it makes it even clearer when it gets to the point of, I will give you the keys, because then you see the office that he's giving Peter, and he's giving him an office of authority. <laughs> That's very fascinating. And, and I know in your fantastic DVD presentation, uh, you, you go to the, the place this happens. Can you un unpack a little bit of the, yeah. the geography, because that, that in itself is so fascinating. That's in my DVD, I, uh, Peter Keeper of the Keys. I go there and I describe all this while I'm pointing it out, but it's in Caesarea Philippi. It's in the northern tip of Israel, right on the Lebanese border. In fact, to get there, you pass the fence with Lebanon, and it was a pagan site of worship where they worship Pan, the god Pan, who was the kind of the man in the front and the goat in the back, and he would chase the girls through the forests, and he was the god of sheep and shepherds. So what a place for Jesus to take a man who's going to turn and in, make into the shepherd where the god of sheep and shepherds was worshipped there. And there was a huge rock, and still is a huge rock there. It's 500 feet long or so, and 50 or 100 feet high. I don't know how high it is. I'm not good at distances like that. But when you come up to that rock, there is on the left-hand side, you see a huge cave. And during the time of Jesus, there was a massive marble temple in front of that cave. And that was built by King Herod to the divine Caesar Augustus. And people came there to worship Augustus and to worship Pan and the pagan deities. And they would throw their living sacrifice into the cave that had water in the bottom. 
And it's, Josephus in the first century said, many of us have lowered a string with a rock down to find the bottom of the water in the cave. We could never find the bottom. So the ancients considered that as a, all the way down to the center of the earth to where the gods lived, to where the dead were. It's to the, it was the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. Look at how this is. We're talking about a big rock. Jesus is going to be called rock, and he's going to build a church on this rock. Well, there is a big rock, and in Jesus' time, there was a temple like a church built there, and you would bring your sacrifice, and you'd throw it into the water, and it would go down to the gods below. And so now Jesus is saying, we're not going to have this false rock and this false church and a false Lord and a false sacrifice, I'm going to start it all over again on a new rock with a new church, and it's going to be to a new Lord, and we're going to have the proper sacrifice. And then it says the gates of hell. Well, why would he mention that? Jesus went up there because of the backdrop. He went all the way. It, it takes us an hour, over an hour, in a Mercedes bus to get up there. I've been there over 150 times. It takes us over an hour to get up there in a Mercedes bus. Jesus walked all the way up to pagan Gentile territory because of this backdrop. He was a master teacher. He loved backdrops. So there it was. There's a rock. He's going to talk about a rock. There's a church, a temple standing in front of that thing. And then there is a cave, which was known by the pagans as the entrance to the netherworld or the gates of hell. And he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. This is if Protestants understood the beauty of what was being said and the backdrop that Jesus used for it. It brings the whole papacy to life. <laughs> That's a brilliant illustration. And it, it, I mean, as a convert, coming to understand the, the papacy and the authority the Catholic Church holds these keys to bind the loose, to interpret the Bible, to help us, uh, to help teach Catholics how to live and how to understand our faith and what Jesus meant. And we come from this world where I used to have to figure out what different Bible passages meant. I had to be a theologian. I had to look at different theologians and decide who I thought was right to decide what I thought was the, the, the real path that Christ wanted me to be on. To leave all that behind and to suddenly uh, follow a church where Jesus stood on this, you know, on the, the gates of hell and gave the keys to this to this person, this first pope. It's it's very liberating as a, as a Christian to be under that authority, knowing what Christ meant and what He established. I don't have to be my own pope anymore. No, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel and hope you're right. <laughs> and you know, another thing, you mentioned the keys of the kingdom being to teach doctrine and scripture, but there's a deeper meaning to that as well, because those words bind and loose in Jesus's culture, they were governmental terms. They were terms of a government that had the right to make laws and to adjudicate them. They were the legislature and the court. And when Jesus says that I'm giving you that authority, he's giving Peter the governmental authority, not just to interpret scripture and to give proper teachings and clarity there and to protect the teaching, but he's also giving them a civil authority. There's going to be a government so that if a brother sins against a brother, you can take it to the church and the church will adjudicate that matter. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then throw him out and consider him as a tax collector. Now, I would say, what church is that referring to? If you go to the Baptist church, Keith, and I go to the Methodist church and we have a problem, what church do we take it to to follow Jesus's command? Take it to the church. Well, I can't take it to your church. They have no authority over me, and I'm not, and you won't have any, my church doesn't have any authority over you. So that Protestantism makes a farce and a mockery of Jesus's words to take it to the church, because Jesus doesn't say one of the churches. 
He says, take it to the church. So binding and loosing is a governmental authority. And when G- and at the day of Pentecost, when there was 120 in the room, it doesn't say there were 120 people. You read it in the Greek, it says 120 names were in the room. That's a very strange way. It's like me saying I had 100 names on my bus in Israel. Why names? Why 120? Well, I looked it up in Jewish tradition at the time of Christ, and if you were going to move out of the big city and start your own new city or community with your own courts that can write the laws and adjudicate them, you have your own Sanhedrin, your own courts, and your own governmental system, you had to have a minimum of 120 people to break away and start your own. And that's what's happening in the upper room. They're breaking away and they're starting their own new community called the Ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church. And in order to do that, they needed 120 names on a list so that they could go out and start their own. And that new community called the church was a governmental. It was like a civic city. It had to have government officials. It had to make laws. It had to have courts. And that's what the church is. You know, you you quote that fantastic passage of Christ talking about bringing your problem to the church and the issue with your brother to the church. And I've mentioned this before in the podcast, such a, a, a formative moment for me in my own Catholic journey was... When I sat down with a friend of mine who was our pastor, our evangelical pastor, a good friend of ours, um, we'd known for a long time, married my wife and I, we, 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 our families were, were fairly close, and I said to him, what, does, what could Jesus mean with this passage? I mean, if we disagree, if I don't agree with you on a certain understanding of doctrine, if we're in disagreement, what church can I bring this to? Because as you said, Steve, I could bring this to the Methodist church down the street, and they could say, oh yeah, you're right, so leave that non-denominational church come to us because we interpret this correctly. And you can just keep going with that because yeah. there's no singular church to bring that to. But if you if you reframe your understanding of what Christ was saying here, if you actually reframe it to the original way that the earliest Christians understood this, well, then here is the easy answer. There was meant to be a church. Exactly. And that church, like in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, is to teach all the truth to all the people all the time. To speak it to all the people, that's the universal church, to speak all the truth through all of history. The Baptists can't do that. They've only been around a little while. Lutherans have only been around 500 years. How can they have claimed that they have taught all of the truth to all of the people all of the time? That word universal rings so true there, and only the Catholic Church can even come close to claiming something like that. So I want to circle back around to this idea that, you know, I never rejected the Pope as the Catholics taught it, because I didn't understand what the Pope was. And one thing that the Catholics talk about is is Peter as the first bishop of Rome. And honestly, as a Protestant, I'd understood or been taught or or come to understand through reading or through listening to sermons or whatever it happened to be, that there wasn't even any evidence that Peter ever was in Rome. This was something I would have, would have heard. So what, what evidence does the church present that, that Peter, if he was in fact the first pope, was ever actually in Rome, where we see the, the seat of the papacy uh, beginning? What evidence is there that that was the case? Well, a lot of times we don't go to Scripture to find something. We go to history. Uh, how do we know that Abraham Lincoln was born in Springfield, Illinois? It's not in the Bible. How do we know that's true? Well, because we know history, and we trust the historians when they write about something that that happened. And we have great documentation of the from the early church that Peter did go to Rome and that he went out and he was first the bishop of Jerusalem, and then he went up to Antioch 
in in Syria, and he was the bishop there for a while among the Gentiles, and then he went preaching all through what's known today as Turkey or Asia Minor, and he went to Rome about 42 AD, and I have in my book a timeline showing you where collected through different historical um, references and sources the, the whole life uh, of Peter and where he was, and that the early historians, the early Christians, they talked about how Peter went to Rome, that he died in Rome, that you could still go to visit his tomb, the great uh, monument to Peter and Paul. They both died there. They died in about 67 AD. There are stories written by the early Christians, the fathers of the church, about how Peter died and where he died. And there's the place where you can see the place where he died today. It's called Trefontani. I take our groups out there for Mass. And then there's the bones of St. Peter that they discovered under the church of St. Peter. They knew they were there. Constantine, when 313, when he legalized Christianity, his mother was a big influence, and they they moved Vatican Hill. It's one of the biggest earth-moving projects ever in history, and they moved a hill over the Vatican um, the swampy area. Why? Because they discovered the bones of Peter. They knew that's where Peter's bones were. And when they discovered them, they are wrapped in purple fabric, which represents royalty, which is he's a royal son of God. And he led the church, Peter and Paul, the founders of the church. And they built that church over top of the tomb of Peter. And that's where it's been ever since the first century. And uh, during World War II, they went down and did archaeology and, and excavation, and they found those bones again with the purple fabric around them. And the bones of St. Paul are under the church of St. Paul outside the walls, out on the other side of Rome. And the people in the early church, in the early times, they built they built churches and they built monuments over the tombs of the apostles. And the early Christians said, when you come here, I'll show you the tomb of Peter. So the fact that he went to Rome is not ever questioned by a sane person and not ever questioned by a person who doesn't have an anti-Catholic agenda, who just will spout off like a parrot that what they've heard from somebody else. Squawk, squawk. Peter was never in Rome. Peter was never in Rome. Bible doesn't say it. That's a bunch of nonsense. Of course he was in Rome. The scriptures verify it. There's places in the scriptures that do verify it, and history verifies it. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised and interested and curious to read uh, in, in Peter's own letter, in First Peter. He talks about Babylon, and this is often yep. misunderstood. I yep. certainly misunderstood this, and, and, and I mean, I wasn't really sure what he meant with that, but uh, the history of the church, I mean, historically, the church has interpreted this in a very clear way. Right. He said the church in Babylon greets you. And obviously, he's not in Babylon. Babylon is extremely far. It was from Rome, thousands of miles away from Rome. And it was on the other side of the Euphrates River and in the area of Iraq and Persia of, of, in Iraq and Iran today. Peter, when he says uh, the, the people, the church here in Babylon greet you, he's referring to who was the great enemy of the Jewish people of Israel? It was Babylon. Who was the great enemy of the Christians? Rome. So he's likening, we're the new, we're the new, Israel, and the new Babylon is persecuting us, which is Rome. And it was his code word, so to speak, that I'm in Rome, and those Christians who are here in Rome with me, which we call with a nickname Babylon, because she's persecuting us now, we all greet you here. So it's it's never been—anybody who— 
has done any historical scholarly work would never challenge the fact that Peter was in Rome. Those are usually people who don't think for themselves, and they just parrot what they've heard from others. So you mentioned the early church and, and early Christians, and you know, you also mentioned this idea of Constantine uh, legalizing Christianity. There's there's so much myth and rumor and, and misunderstandings around the, the origin of the papacy and early Christians and how they understood the papacy. And often this gets lumped into this idea, well, you know, Constantine legalized Christianity and then established a hierarchy and politicized it and made it into this kind of governmental structure. You've done a fantastic job, I think, unpacking how how historically Jesus was establishing a kind of governmental structure himself. This wasn't... The whole fact that he gave Peter the keys, and he is the king, and he's going to leave, and he's leaving a royal steward in charge while he's gone. Where's he going? John chapter 14, 1 through 3. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He's going up to heaven to prepare a place for us. And in the meantime, he doesn't leave his people without a leader. He gives the keys to his royal steward, and the royal steward takes care of his kingdom in his absence. You have that. You have so many other things. But then the early church, right from the beginning, Peter stood up and spoke on the day of Pentecost. You don't hear the voice of any of the other apostles. John doesn't say anything. James doesn't say anything. None of the only voice you hear is Peter. And then Paul later, but Peter is the voice. He picks up as his authority, he picks up the keys of the kingdom, and he leads the church. And that's what he does. And when Peter dies, Linus and Cletus and Clement, and you see it in the church, you have the list from the very early Christians. They didn't, they, if there was a heresy, they didn't go to the Bible to prove the heresy was wrong, because they didn't even have a New Testament for 400 years. The New Testament was not collected into a book until the end of the 4th century. What they had prior to that was the was the writings of the apostles, but not in any collection. There were 300 books that claimed to be by the apostles. What they had were the bishops of the church, the bishop of Rome, and the sacred tradition. That's how they argued against the heretics. They said, we had Peter, Linus, Cletus, and Clement, so we're right. And that's how the early church defended their doctrine. And then slowly the New Testament was developed, written and developed. And then after that, they also used the New Testament, but they always would fall back on the authority of the church. So that was the way the early church, and when you read the writings in my book on Upon This Rock, the whole first part of it is going through the first documents of the church of the first century, showing that even the first century Christians and Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome, they understood clearly the authority of the Bishop of Rome. And then I go into the next, uh, the last half is the first eight centuries of the church, showing that there may be some who did not like what the Pope said, but they never questioned his authority to say it and to lead. <laughs> I remember very clearly encountering your book and encountering all the, all those witnesses to what the office of the Pope was, and just being floored. And, you know, there are there are. I had Dr. Doug Beaumont on the show a number of times now, and he was he was famously uh, working with uh, the late Norman Geisler on one of his uh, systematic theology texts, and. And as evangelicals, these guys would have drawn on the early church fathers to kind of uh, shore up some of these evangelical teachings. But Doug, who's now a convert, said himself that he would have essentially been just picking out passages from the early church fathers to try and shoehorn in to fit into the theology yep. that of, of evangelicalism. Yep. But, I mean... If 
you let it speak for itself, you let it speak for itself. Yeah. There's one thing I wanted to mention, too, that a lot, even under the current papacy, there's some confusion and some um, people are, have some problems and confusion. And I just wanted to clarify that my books are not about any particular pope, but especially the latest one I wrote on the papacy, what the pope does and what it matters, is more a job description that you can read it and see what the church has always taught from scripture, tradition, and history, what the position of the pope is. And then you could judge any pope based on how well he's living up to his job description. And there's a question, um, I've been told that if you question the pope and say about the infallibility, that the pope, whatever he says and does is correct. And if you don't uh, believe everything he says and, and concur with everything he says or teaches, then you're a heretic or a schismatic. And that's simply just not true. The pope is only infallible, and I think we need to touch on this, before we close, the Pope is only infallible under certain conditions, when he speaks as the pastor of the Church, when he intends to define doctrine, when he does it of his own free will without a gun to his head, and when he does it from the chair of Peter, whether he's actually sitting in it or claiming that chair of Peter, and when he is defining something that is incumbent upon all believers, then that is considered to be an infallible teaching. Pope Francis has never yet had an infallible teaching in that strict sense of the word. And is it can you is a pope beyond criticism? Well, no, it's not. And I would say that if you look at even from scripture in Galatians chapter 2 verse 11, Peter is the pope and Paul is not the pope, and Peter has taught correctly, but he's living as a hypocrite contrary to what his infallible teaching was, and Paul, who's not the pope, calls him on it. And if you read Galatians 2.11, it's quite extraordinary. He said, in public, I confronted Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Paul thought it was proper that he confront the, the current pope with things that he was doing that were incorrect, and Paul thought it was proper for him to do that. And as you go through, you see all through history that this is the case, that there was always the... Um, the uh, the church taught that we defer to the pope we have great respect and honor for the office of the pope and the man who fills that office there have been like you said when we started great popes and some that aren't so good and there's even been some bad popes but always we respect the office and we respect the man in the office and we defer to him whenever we can but the catechism itself also gives a statement that it is our obligation. We it is necessary in our obligation to correct our prelates when they are in when they are wrong or doing something or teaching something wrong. It's not only our right but our duty to do that. So I just wanted to make that point so that if someone disagrees with a pope somewhere along the line, it doesn't make them a heretic and it doesn't make them a schismatic. But we do offer um allegiance to the office, and we show great respect for the office in the man in the office. That's a very important thing to underscore. Let's finish with this one last question, a quick one, and I wonder what you would say, especially to our non-Catholic Christian listeners, you know, to yourself or to, to, to me listening to this podcast before we became Catholic, why is the papacy such an important doctrine of the Church? Without the papacy, there would be mass confusion, just like there is in Protestantism. If you want to see what Christianity looks like without a pope, go look at the Protestant experiment. You have all kinds of different groups competing with each other, stealing sheep from each other, and teaching every every kind of idea in theology. Even Martin Luther, towards the end of his life, said, there are now as many theologies as there are heads. Some teach different 
views of baptism. Some teach different views of, of the, the Lord's table, and some think they've swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. So this is a quote from Martin Luther. So if you want to see what it would be like without the papacy, just look at the confusion and the chaos of Christianity out there under the label of Protestant or Independent. Catholicism is understood from the beginning that it is a universal church for the whole world. It needs courts. It needs a legislature. It needs doctrinal uh, certainty. It needs unity, and that's what the Pope offers. It offers all of those things for the universal church, and some of those thought they were smarter than what Jesus started. I can do it on my own, and they jumped off the ship onto a raft. And basically what we have now is a Catholic church is like the raft on the sea, heading towards the celestial city, and a bunch of people got rebellious against the captain and said, I'm not going to let this captain tell me what to do. So they go down below in the belly of the ship, they find wood and they find ropes and they lash them together and they make rafts and they throw the rafts off and they jump off and now all of the protestants are out on their rafts saying, we can make it on our own. We don't need the captain to tell us what to do. We don't need the crew and all of those things and your traditions. Well, they don't realize that they if they don't stay with the ship, they're not going to make it to the other side. The closer they stay to the ship, some are because Vatican II said that those out there who are named the name of Christ, recite the creed, or baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, some of those are our brothers and sisters in Christ, those separated from the ship. And so we are still on the ship, which is still unified and knows exactly where it's going because we got the map and the compass and the GPS. The Protestants and their rafts, some of them will get there, but they don't have the fullness of the faith. Why would you want to be on a raft when you could be on a cruise ship? And I found that in the, on the Catholic Church is like the ship, the fullness of the faith is there. So my family and I were going to spend the rest of our life on the deck of that ship calling out to all the people on the raft and inviting them to come back. And once in a while when I have time, I'm going to look at the people on the deck of the ship and say, why aren't you smiling? Don't you understand where you are? <laughs> That's fantastic. Steve, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. Can you point listeners uh, where they can go to find out more about your talks, your pilgrimages, your your videos, your books, all that stuff? My two books on the papacy are there, my book on St. John's Gospel, my conversion story, Crossing the Tiber, and all my 10 videos, documentaries we've made on location. And I've probably got 40 talks. I've got one called Peter, the Rock, the Keys, and the Chair, and a lot of them on Mary and different things. Um, It's all at Catholic Convert. And if you want to go on a pilgrimage, I know a lot of people aren't thinking of that right now uh, with uh, the virus and so on, but I'm taking a group in July. The end of July, I'm going to be the first group back to Israel with no groups, no crowds, no pushing. It's going to be wonderful. So if you want to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land or to any other Catholic biblical sites like Rome and Poland and Lords and Fatima, go to my site, CatholicConvert.com. I've got hundreds of conversion stories for you to read. I've got hundreds of documents and letters I've written that are all free to print out and read and share with other people. And uh, thank you, Keith, for having me on, and God bless you, and keep up the good work. (laughs) Thank you. God bless you. God bless your family. Fantastic work you are doing, Steve. Thank you so much. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you once again for spending an hour of your time with me and my guest. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Check out catholicconvert.com for Steve's website, thecordialcatholic.com for my website and blog, 
I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and send your feedback, your questions, your comments. Tell me who you are, where you're listening from, and why why you're listening. That's at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love to hear from you guys. Let me know, too, how I can pray for you during these difficult times, and please pray for me and our show as well. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic to support this show. It is at present completely listener-funded, and I thank you for your support. It helps to keep this thing going during these challenging times. I appreciate all those patrons. Thank you guys so much. It's always a pleasure to join you guys on this podcast. Please subscribe to it or follow it wherever you find it if you can. Please leave ratings and reviews as well. Those help push the podcast out to new people and expand the mission of evangelization, which underpins this whole thing. Thanks, friends. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again next week. And God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.